Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So it took me a while to understand that a healthy sex life and intimacy with you, Matt, was important to our marriage and our recovery of our marriage, as well as important to my healing and my recovery and healing. So you think sex and intimacy is important to you personally, in addition to the marriage? Yes. Um, sex and intimacy with you, my right. partner, right. is important. Yes. Wow. So. That's, you've come a long way in the development of your opinion. I mean, we both have, right? As we've learned and made progress, but that's, that's a lot. I think what you've just said there is a lot. All right. Do, do you think it's a lot? I don't know. I, I don't overthink things the way you do. So <laughs> I just think that it's just a, something that I've learned and felt and I don't overanalyze it. Well, thanks for opening the discussion with that. Let's go to our listener question, Sherry. And again, reminder to listeners, and we're actually getting a little low in listener question inventory, so we would love to get some fresh new questions in the queue. You can send those. What? Maybe there's a reason, because people don't want to hear our opinions about yeah. their questions. That is not a positive outlook. <laughs> Sherry's under a lot of stress, as everyone, a lot of our listeners know. Sherry works at our church, and we are recording this on Good Friday, which is not a time when someone who works at a church has a lot of spare time on their hands. So, kind of stressful. Thank you for taking the time to record this. If you'd like to add a on my calendar. fresh perspective, if you give a shit what we have to say about anything... Again, not a clinical perspective. We're not therapists or psychologists, but if you want some lived experience reaction, send your listener question to matt at soberandunashamed.com. We appreciate all the questions we get. So let's tie. I found a listener question that ties into your opening statement, Sherry. How do you talk about how? How do you talk to your partner about sex when you've established less than healthy patterns? you want to break out of. Do you want to do you want me to go first? Yeah, I'm trying to think about and ponder the question a little bit before I answer. When you, okay, so how do you talk about sex when you've established less than healthy patterns you want to break out of? So, you and I all at my doing, I'll take 100% of the blame on this. Uh developed a lot of less than healthy patterns as it relates to sex in our marriage while I was drinking. We had a lot of what we now call wifely duty sex or obligatory sex where you weren't interested and I would say I need it. And a lot of times I really felt that way. It wasn't like evil manipulation. It was manipulation, but it wasn't evil. It was I really felt like the release of orgasm was important. For me, uh, you know, w when my brain chemistry was all screwed up from alcohol, I would get a dopamine hit from the beginning of a drinking session. I would get a dopamine hit from having sex. And, uh, you know, I was, I was messed up. I was in addiction. And so the need for that dopamine hit was unhealthily strong. And so... We, you know, oh gosh, I, I would try to talk you into all kinds of different arrangements over the years. At one point, the worst of it, I mean, I'm just super embarrassed to admit this, but we had an agreement that I was going to get some every night. I was going to get something every night because that's what I need. And I would, I didn't, I wouldn't talk about dopamine and alcohol at the time. I would talk about my stressful job and I mean, and it was stressful and I was working ridiculous hours, working almost all waking hours for some parts of that. And so, why are you smiling? You do that now. No, I don't. It's better. <laughs> it's a little bit better. It's a little better. 
But but it could get. But without the alcohol driving your anxiety. Yeah. And that need for just always chasing a different kind of buzz, perhaps. Well, that's the thing I would blame was the work. When really we know now it was the hijacked neurotransmitters in my brain. And, you know, everything was wonky up there. And so the only time I would get any relief was from the beginning of a drinking session or from sex. And so, I mean, I even really, really early on on the blog, really early on in, in my... Uh, you know, expressing this through writing, I, I, maybe that's one I didn't even publish, actually, now that I think about it. I wrote about this. I wrote about how, hey, there's two places where I feel relief, and it's from about two beers into a, two IPAs into a drinking session, and when I orgasm, and that's it. And everything else is chaos and nightmarish and awful. And so, uh, so yeah, so we had, I mean, really, really bad things from, you know, I'm going to get some every night to, you know, for a long time we would talk about big nights, which we tried to, I mean, gosh, once a quarter, maybe we would try to have big nights where that's where it was going to be romantic and you were going to orgasm and we were going to work really hard on that. And I mean, they were just a disaster because you were in such a bad mental space and absolutely no attraction or desire or arousal. And so we were just trying to just jam a square peg through a round hole. And still in the back of my mind or the front of my mind, however you want to say that, I knew we were married and married couples have sex. And I was not willing to even, you know, entertain a discussion about removing sex from our marriage. How do you feel about everything I just said? Um, well, it's the truth. Yay. <laughs> um, I think it's hard to like open the conversation to addressing an unhealthy sexual pattern depending on where your partner is in sobriety and how well they're doing. I think that there has to be a lot of like self-esteem for the alcoholic. They, they have to be in a good place to receive. Cause I think what happened in our case was if, and this was early on, if I tried to talk about things that would make me feel bad or the way I felt and viewed sex and sexual intimacy and just intimacy in general, like, and just, you know, um, touching, but not always having to end in an orgasm. Like those were all very dismissed by you. You didn't care for my opinion. Um, I think because there was like, you kind of, maybe it was a, you felt like you were the man and you knew what I would like, or you just didn't know at all. Or I don't know. It was very kind of bizarre how that started so early in the relationship when you think about being young adults without a whole lot of responsibility, like that it would be the opposite. How what started? What do you mean? Like your dismissiveness and your like trying to take control of the situation in the bedroom. Like you didn't like for me to tell you things or what I would like. Well, but I then you that... wanted me to, you know, it kind of makes me think of that silly country song. Like, I think it's like a... <sighs> I can't remember it, but an angel in the morning and a devil at night or something. I think it's like a Charlie Rich song. It was so. Well, I think this is a great example of how alcohol impacts us way before addiction. Mm -hmm. That had nothing to do with me being addicted to alcohol. That had to do with alcohol, though. Yeah. I would get a few beers in me and I'd want swinging from the rafters and candle wax on the nipples. But exactly. But then if I said, how about this or just move here, you would like take it offensively. Yeah. That's that's alcohol. That's not addiction. That's alcohol. Yeah. But so that immaturity started and that set up a pattern. Immaturity. Fair. And that set up a pattern that lasted a very long time. So I think when you go to address it, it has to be, you know... It's hard because you don't know how receptive your partner is going to be unless it's something that you've talked about. I mean, we we had tried to address it several times throughout the years and even in early sobriety, but I wasn't there 
to receive it because I was still very closed off. So I didn't really care what your sexual needs and desires were still because I still had my guard up. I was still being defensive. I wasn't going to relinquish and just act like, oh, well, now you're sober for nine months and you want to address this. Well, now you get to have everything you want, you know, and here's a big parade and, and you get to have your, you know, sex the way you like because I didn't feel safe with you. I didn't feel trusting of you. And even early on in conversations that we would have about sex, I still was very guarded and I looked at it like you just needed it to fulfill some sort of dopamine mm -hmm. release that you were missing with alcohol. Because I wasn't drinking anymore. Because you weren't drinking. Um, and we've kind of, you know, talked about that. Like, were you addicted to that in a way? Not so much being a sexual addict, but was that a way that you could, you know, fulfill some of that need? Here's a, sex. here's a very specific memory I have of early sobriety. I Because we were having unfulfilling, really crappy, harmful, more than helpful sex frequently. A lot at that point. And I specifically remember thinking, this is not good. This is not good for Sherry. This is not good for the relationship. I hadn't gotten far enough to understand how bad it was for me. But I knew it wasn't good for you and I knew it wasn't good for the relationship. But I thought to myself, if I give in and suggest that we reduce the frequency and improve the, um, not intensity, improve the quality, then I will be giving back something that I fought hard. I manipulated hard to get. And so, I mean, that's awful. That's awful. But I remember thinking, I don't want to, you know, she's made, she's agreed to certain things and I don't want to back out of any of this because if I lose it, I mean, my, my, my only little sliver of defense, which is weak and awful is I knew that you wanted nothing to do with me at that point physically. And so I felt like anything I was going to give back, I would never, I would never get back. So my vision was. If I gave you an inch, you would take that inch and then some. And if I gave you another inch, you would take that. And eventually we would not be having sex at all. And we would never have sex for the rest of our lives. And that's just how we would live forever. And so I didn't want to give up anything for fear that I would lose everything. Now, again, that's a very weak, 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 weak argument. Um, but I mean, back to the listener's question. Once you've established less than healthy patterns, which you and I definitely had, my fault alcohol's fault, my fault. How do you break out of it? Oh my God. So hard. But you said, you said the key words earlier. You said self-esteem. I had to feel good enough about myself that I could live without that dopamine hit. And you had to feel good enough about yourself that you could engage with me or have any interest whatsoever to engage in me, with me. And so I don't know that it's about the discussion so much as it is about the the healing that otherwise has to take place. The discussion is just, it's either haveable or not haveable. And until the two parties are independently on the road to recovery, um, it's pretty tough. Yeah. And what comes to mind too is <clears throat> how you've said you have to be in enough pain to make the change, but maybe not pain, but you have to be so frustrated or you have to be so like passionate about talking about it that maybe you do sometimes just put your own fears. I mean, I'll call them fears of talking about it to your spouse and realize there might be an argument. It might backfire, but you have to be able to express what you're feeling at that time and maybe come into it before you have that conversation with like a little bit of a game plan. Like this would be my future hopes. I don't know if I'm there or not. Yeah. Say that would be me. That's smart. You know, I feel like I, I've talked to you about how, yeah, I would like to have a better sex life, but I didn't, I wasn't there. Yeah. I couldn't give what I didn't have. Right. But I also had to kind of put aside some of my fears after I saw how healthy and reliable you were. And I had to kind of step out of my comfort zone a little bit. 
So maybe you can kind of play about how much is it worth to you at that moment or go into it like, here's a game plan and here's what I see in the future. This is what I cannot do right now, but these are the things I can do. And this would also be me stepping out of my comfort zone. I have heard intimacy described as the final frontier of relationship recovery from alcoholism on multiple occasions. I've described it that way and I've heard other people describe it that way. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So I think that's a good tip, Sherry. When you have, if you try to have that discussion, say, listen, here's the end game. Here's where I'm trying to get, but don't make any mistake about it. This isn't a quick fix. This isn't a, you know, a two week seminar or something. This is, this is long term. And it certainly has been for us and you and I have worked very hard at it. We've both worked very hard at it. And it's the last hardest piece. It's tied directly to trust. That's one of the reasons. And trust is the hardest thing to get back, especially when you've been gaslit, manipulated, denied to, and lied to. Trust is the hardest thing to get back. And so if intimacy relies on trust and trust relies on intimacy, and they do, then it makes sense that it's the last thing that's coming back. But stating that it is a goal to get it back is really great. I want to highlight the the line in the listener question, less than healthy patterns. Once you've established less than healthy patterns... Not having sex at all is a less than healthy pattern as well. Mm-hmm. You and I took one bad road <laughs> of having it all the time. The other bad road is just cutting it off altogether. I'm not saying bad road as in someone has done something wrong. I don't, I'm not saying that at all. That, that alcohol consumption that causes these um, impossible choices and detrimental decisions is the problem. The alcohol is the problem. But whether you've chosen to continue to have frequent unfulfilling sex or you've decided not to have sex at all, those are both less than healthy patterns. And so coming out of this listener question, I just want to ask you, because I think it's super powerful coming from you. It doesn't mean a hill of beans coming from me, but it's super powerful coming from you because you're the woman. And yes, there's a gender component here. And because you are the spouse of the alcoholic. And so, yes, you are the one that was abused and gaslit and lied to. It's super important coming from you. So would you share again what you said off the top when we first recorded? I know you probably don't even remember it so long ago. Um, Just that it took me a long time to realize that a healthy sexual relationship and intimacy, sexual intimacy with you, Matt, was important not only to our marriage, but important to me and healthy for me. Yeah. I think that's what I said. Well, I... I mean, it's what I feel. I don't know if it's verbatim, but... I don't care if it's verbatim. That last part is the point that has been the aha moment of 2023 for us, really, and has is the point that it's so impactful that you're here to drive that home. Um, the, the, the goal, there are mutual goals here. It's, it's like, you know, it's, it's like you're trying to get from Denver, Colorado to Beijing, China, and you're going to go East and I'm going to go West, but eventually we're both going to end up in Beijing, China. That might be a terrible analogy, but the route to get there. It's so that, different. That I, yeah. But the destination is the same. And so I, I just think for any couple who has just said, for any half of any couple who has said, you know what? I can go the rest of my life without sex and be just fine. I mean, well, okay, fine. Then you'll be fine. But if fine is all you want, then I feel sorry for you because we should want a lot more out of our relationships and a lot more out of our individual lives than fine. And so... This has been really kind of an epiphany. And this is the, as much as we've talked about sex, this is the first time we've talked about this epiphany. So thank you for sharing that twice that you've realized how important it is, is for you. Um, here, here's a point that I want to make. When a couple faces addiction, typically both parties learn about it. Especially once the drinker has acknowledged that uh, sobriety is either here or coming, but it's, it's important. So things like brain chemistry, um, things like how 
temptation works and the draw of the subconscious mind and the importance of connection. All of these things are things that I learned about, but they're things that you learned about as well. Right, Sherry? Mm -hmm. If one of us contracted cancer, we would both research that particular type of cancer and we would both want to know everything we possibly could about that particular type of cancer. That's typical. That's common. What's also typical and common in a very unfortunate way is with sex and intimacy issues, both sides typically just go to their separate corners and look for their echo chambers. So if you are in a situation like Sherry and I, if you're in a situation where I was the alcoholic and you were the spouse and you were being coerced into wifely duty sex that you had no interest in and no pleasure from, it wouldn't be hard for you to find other women that were in that same situation that would tell you, yeah, that's gross, that's disgusting, that's awful, I'm sorry you have to deal with that, you should get out of that as easily and quickly as possible. And if you're a guy and your wife is not putting out as often as you want to, it's really easy for you to find other guys that'll say, yes, didn't your wife pay attention to the wedding vows? Doesn't your wife, you know... I don't know, read the Bible? Doesn't your wife know that the role of the wife is to uh, engage in sex? And so it's really easy to get support for your own narrow, uninsightful, non-inclusive point of view. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. also men typically wouldn't say, my wife and I are having less than fulfilling sex and I'm feeling bad about it because I feel like I'm taking advantage of her, which is something that you came to kind of a conclusion to in your long-term sobriety was you were being unfulfilled by the sexual relationship we had and you were aware of that feeling. You didn't understand it because of alcohol. Yeah. I think when a guy goes to his echo chamber, he's very. It's going to be very rare the guy that's going to say we're having unfulfilling yeah. sex because that is a shot to his yeah. uh, manliness. I so, think but he's going to say they, we're not having sex often enough. But even if you can like, as you know, as the maybe the alcoholic or the male, if we're just being gender specific, kind of like look at it and and approach kind of back to the listener qu- question, kind of approach it as it's. As unfulfilling for me as it's probably for you. Yeah. You know, kind of That's a hard... using those words, but you have to kind of expand your mind because... That's right. Yeah, like, you could just be, you know, doing whatever you've been doing for years and years and years, and it's not healthy, and it's not um, bonding you to right. as a couple. So, yeah, so you can go to those echo chambers and you can always find support. But if you are raw and honest and you both have, like, the same out, same goal. I'm glad you said that because I'm glad you used the word bonding. There is a connection through physical and emotional intimacy that's available to both parties. And it's important for both parties. Now, men are more commonly the ones that say I get my connection to you through sex and you Sherry are disgusted by that because you look at all the other missed opportunities for connection for us to have conversations for me to rub your back when it's sore without expecting sex um, for me to be a good parent that's a huge one for for mothers for them to see their spouses taking care of the children there are all these other opportunities for connection that I just blow off but I just think that all the connection comes from sex. And so that's a painful thing to hear from your spouse. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, because it makes you, um, as the sober spouse, um, feel like, oh, so sex is the only way you can open up and feel connected because nothing else I do has any connection to you. And so I know that that was something that, you know, I don't necessarily know if you said those words to me at all because you're kind of a talker and you have always shared your feelings. It's never, but I can imagine that if my partner who had been closed off and not able to share and express themselves drinking or in sobriety said that, I would be like, oh, so I, you could just go get a blow up doll and lay there in bed next to, you know, 
and then that would make you connected to them, like, because of the sex. Listen, that would just make me very frustrated, and I know that that happens a lot. I know I'm a big talker, but I definitely felt like there was connection through physical contact with you that I couldn't get anywhere else. And when I would say that, I could tell it was falling on deaf ears. I didn't understand why. I didn't understand that me being a good parent was connection for you. I didn't understand any of the rest of what I said. But I knew that it was there. And what I what I know now, as you and I have evolved so far, is that that connection is there for you too when it's done right. Yeah. When it's just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, you know, you're fulfilling your wifely duty, you get the opposite of connection from that. You get repulsed by that. But when it's done right and you feel safe and you're trusting, then there is emotional, physical, mental relationship connection for you too. But also what happens is the alcoholic is doing the damage in the relationship and they don't see that you've lost the trust. They don't see that you've lost the respect of that. You know, I had very little respect for you in so many areas of our life. So th- maybe it's because they're blocking it out because of the alcohol or they just can't see the damage that's being done. So then in sobriety, when you try to explain that, and early sobriety is hard and it's selfish, but, you know, say year two when you try to explain that, they don't get it because they haven't lost that connection with you. They haven't lost maybe that trust. They haven't lost that friendship or that respect or you know, that we as the sober partners have lost for the alcoholic because of the damage done. And so if you did explain that, I would think to myself, but I know I've seen it. I've seen her, this sounds patriarchal and this sounds sexist, but I've seen her give herself over to me in bed, completely give up all, um, not nervousness, but, uh, you know, holding back. And just be like, here, I am here, I am yours. And I've seen that. And so to me, there's ultimate connection in that. So if I can just make you do that again, then we're fixing the relationship. And in my warped mind, I thought the way to get there was starting out in bed. I just got to touch her right, or I got to be patient, or I got to say the right thing, and she'll get there. And what I didn't understand is... It's physically impossible for you to get there starting out in bed. It starts out anywhere but in bed. It starts out with how I make you feel and how you feel about yourself outside the bedroom, whether or not you're able to get to that full kind of trusting release space. So at the beginning of this statement, you said that I was just laying there fully trusting, engaging. You would want me to be active because maybe this was before alcohol took hold you had seen me in the past be engaged rare very rare but but i had seen but you had seen it but you had seen me involved and excited and and wanting to have a good sexual connection when i say when i say release or giving over i mean yeah all the blocks are gone from your brain okay you are in it in it to win it like and i'm not talking swinging from the chandeliers necessarily i'm talking you are, there's nowhere on earth you'd rather be at that moment than with me engaged in what we're doing. And I had seen that. And I thought, if I just do it right in bed, I can get us back there. That There's no road from bed that leads to there. Mm-hmm. The road starts way, way, way somewhere else. And I didn't understand. But so, so when I would talk about how I get my connection from sex, I also knew you could get it too. I just couldn't figure out how to to get us there. Yeah. Because I didn't understand. But I think, too, maybe because there is some physiology to this that, like, you know, I, I want to try to be respectful, but women who are born women, like, there is that desire that is lost over time. After the romance part of a relationship, that courting part of the relationship happens. And so it's hard to have those unequal sexual desires and expectations in a marriage. um, And to keep that fulfilled. And then, you know, just even in a 
normal, non-addictive marriage. That <clears throat> That's hard. And I think that even, you know, with or without any sort of addiction, a lot of people don't know that. And so there has to kind of be a continuum and a respect that, Yes, that sexual desire sexual desire and appetites are different, but also there's that physiological component. Like, for women, it does kind of fall off after years. So keeping, you know, keeping the, the like what you said, keeping a good relationship and being a good parent, being a good, you know, taking care of me and, and meeting my needs, not just the needs of the kids. I think that helps a lot. Being respectful of me, not, you know, so that I think has helped in longer term sobriety for you because there has been more positive connections we've had outside of the bedroom, but in day to day life. And also it, you know, so that helps a lot. You said a whole lot right there. I I want to address gender quickly because I recognize that you and I are coming at this from a very traditional standpoint. Me, the male, has a higher libido than you, the female. That's not always the case. Right. I have found great relief in getting to the point in my understanding of these topics that I don't think it matters who has the higher libido. So I no longer feel guilty talking about very gender-specific things because both sides, regardless of who has the higher libido and who has the lower libido, both sides need to have these bonding-connected sexual experiences to have fulfilling and satisfied relationships. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I'm the woman and I want it more, fine, listen to what I'm saying then. And, and think of your partner through Sherry's words don't just shut us off and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. It still applies to you. Mm-hmm. We're still, it's still important for you and I to get to the same place. So the gender effect is there. It's real. I don't know. If I was to guess, I'd say 80% of the people fall into our kind of gender roles. But even if you're in the 20%, keep listening um, because the end goal is the same. You just Sorry, have to take a different route. Probably nope. not so gender specific. No, I, I think we have to talk that way because that's our experience i the other thing i want to say we've said it before on the podcast I, I am in a master's degree program for sexual health and so you'll notice that i get really definitive and so do you because you've learned a lot of this with me about some of what we say some of what we say is based on our experience some of it's based on re- scientific research and so we're getting more confident in talking about these topics because there is some academics behind it. It's not just me and you. And so, hey, what applies to us should apply to the rest of the world. There's more behind it than that. Now, I want to talk about what you just said about how over the course of your life, your libido has changed. Very, very, very common in women. There is a mothering um, component to this. There are hormones that are released in the brains of women when they give birth that make them really good at nurturing but it also changes your libido to some degree so some of it's just over time some of it is hormonal changes resulting in childbirth and i think we need to look at the there's like a sex and intimacy cycle if you will there's attraction then there's desire then there's arousal and then there's orgasm if you look at those four components most guys myself included i am always attracted to you I always desire you. I am half the time aroused just walking down the street thinking about you. And orgasm is very easy. Okay? So when we talk about libido, that's an important thing for both sides to understand. If you are are the wife of someone who wants to have sex more than you do, you need to think of, I think, you need to think of those four components and think of where does your spouse live? Probably always attracted, always desire, depending on stress level, aroused half of the time, and it's easy to have an orgasm. For you, you, even the very first thing, attraction comes in and out. 
if I am short with you, uh, and, and so here's a big part. Until, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I thought attraction was way more of a physical thing. And I've now learned um, as appearance. my hair has fallen out more and more and I've chosen to wear a beard that you don't like, I've now learned more and more that you that attraction for you has very little to do with physical appearance. Is yes. that fair? Yes. What you look like very, very much does not matter to me. Yeah. You could so, be 300 pounds and you could be the best person in the planet and I would love you. Or you can be 150 pounds and you can be a complete, and, or 180 pounds and full of muscle and be a complete dick and I wouldn't be attracted to you. Okay, so what does attract you? I don't know, lots of things. Like, just the way you are in the world, the way you walk in the world, the way you respect people or don't respect people, the way you respect me or don't respect me. Um, let, like, me let me stop you there for a second. I, my notes are a mess now because we've gone all over the place, which is great. We have not followed my script at all. But somewhere in here, I have... So, Esther Perel is my hero in this work. She's a Belgian-American psychotherapist who does a ton of work and talks a lot and writes a lot about sex and intimacy. And she is just, she's the godfather to me at this point. The godmother, perhaps? The godmother. She talks about how caregiving is loving, but it's also a turnoff. No one is turned off by someone who needs them. So let's apply that to what you just said and let's apply that to alcoholism. Whether I'm in active addiction and you're cleaning up after me and fixing messes and making excuses for me to other people and making excuses for me to the children and washing, you know, bed sheets that I've spilled beer on or whatever, any of those kind of caregiving things. Or I'm in early sobriety and I'm, oh, Sherry, you don't understand how bad this hurts. You don't understand how hard this is. This is so, like, you could never understand what it's like for me not to drink. All of that kind of stuff, which is natural. It's part of the early sobriety period. But that, anything that I do that puts you in the caregiver role is a complete turnoff. You don't say, oh, look at my husband groveling and whining about how he can't drink beer. Let me go take my clothes off. I want a piece of that. I mean, that's disgusting to you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this point that Esther Perel makes is is just foundational. It's so important. I'm sorry. I know I exaggerate sometimes. But... If you are taking care of the person, you don't want to climb on top of the person. So if you are the me in this relationship, if you're the drinker and you're complaining that you're not getting enough support and one of the ways you want support is sex, the very first thing you should do is stop fucking complaining that you're not getting enough support. Because if you're asking for support, you're not going to get uh, interactive sex where the other person has any interest in it whatsoever. She talks about how Attraction, she what she has seen as attraction is you're at a party and you're watching your partner from across the room engage in a conversation and making other people laugh and they're they're kind of you know large and in charge and they're and they're in their element or you see them at their job and they're succeeding that's attractive or you, or let's bring it down to something you and I I think I can say with confidence if I'm interacting and spending time with our kids where I'm not on my phone and I'm not thinking about work. I'm just in the moment and spending time with our kids. Do you find that attractive? Yeah. Yeah. And I've realized that as our children have gotten older and they have become more independent, I appreciate the way you have adjusted your parenting with them. And I also realized that I have now needed more of your attention. Like... Not being on the phone and working all the time. That's a turnoff. Right. You know, so even if, like, it's just you and I and it's Friday night and you're like, I got to get these things done and it's 730 and maybe our kids have plans or they're watching a movie downstairs together or something and then I'm just milling around the house. It's like, well, you know, I'm not being attended to at all when it's supposed to be a weekend or time off. That's, you know, something I've learned as the kids have gotten older, like spending when we don't spend enough time together, that's not, you know, like constraint, like 
where we like got to get something done together, you know, or even if it is a project, but we're working well together on the project that is more attractive than, you know, being combative during the project. So I'm attracted to your face and your body and your, your sense of humor and your spunkiness. It's not just physical. And I live in a constant state of this attraction. Your attraction fluctuates. And you are in the 80th, 90th percentile for woman, women, according to not just our experience, but Esther Perel and others, right? Mm-hmm. So all of these things that I mentioned, that you mentioned, that you need, you need those for attraction. And attraction is just step one of four. And that's so important for people to understand. Step two of four is desire. You might be attracted to me and not necessarily want to have sex with me because you just don't want to have sex. Because you're just, you're, I don't know, you've had your children and you're 50 years old and um, you just don't have desire to the level that I do. Fair enough? Yeah. I don't think we need to spend a whole bunch of time on that. Um, I think that's should be pretty well understood by people. Let's move on to step three, arousal. You know, it doesn't take much to arouse me. It's interesting, and this is maybe TMI, but hell, that happens a lot. But if I am stressed enough, um, arousal, you know, that sometimes you'll be like, you know, what's going on? You don't seem like you're into it. And I, and I know in my head I'm thinking about something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got to snap out of that and concentrate. And um, so that's that's the, you know, the full extent of how arousal impacts me. Arousal for you and for many women, and this is, I think, somewhat gender specific. I've learned that it's, you have reactive arousal at this point in your life as opposed to just spontaneous arousal. So you, there's no thing that I can do. There's no amount of good parenting and attentiveness to you and success at my job and whatever. Name 10 other things that are attractive. There's no amount of attractiveness that I can do that's going to necessarily arouse you. Almost no amount. I mean, occasionally the wind blows just right and for some reason you're aroused. For the most part, your arousal is reactive. And this was so important for you to learn because... You had to engage in physical contact without being aroused and know that it's going to take a little while. But if you can get yourself relaxed and you can get yourself in the moment, then the arousal will take place and your body will come along. Right? Yeah. Don't want to talk about this, apparently. I didn't know we were going there, so I was just listening to what you had to say. But yes. Yeah, you you couldn't just behave right, you know. Yeah. And, and it would happen. Yeah. I'm I'm too old for that now. Okay. Yeah. Too old what? might be a might be a leading factor. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, cuz isn't there like But but when I say reactive arousal and I describe it, you can get there and you've learned how to get there and you've worked at this. I mean, I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Arousal isn't automatic for you the way it is for me. Yeah. But you can do it. Yeah. I mean, you have to make the effort. And the know, only reason you would make the effort is if you see the payoff as being beneficial. Right. Like, yes, I'm sorry. Like, men foreplay and women foreplay, that's just a whole lot of differences. I mean. Let's go back to Esther Perel. <laughs> Esther Perel says, this is my favorite Esther Perel quote. Where did I write it down? Foreplay starts at the end of the previous orgasm. Ooh. So it's how I behave, it's how I treat you, it's how I talk to you, it's how I spend time with you, make time for you, um, it's how I treat the kids, it's all of that stuff we were talking about. That is what foreplay is. For me, you know, you and I could get in a heated argument <laughs> and, I'm you know, have sex. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I'm still good to go. Yeah. That just is not how it works for you. Yeah. That must just suck to be in that kind of brain. You know, uh, I've always thought of it as an advantage, but you're right. I mean, because you get disappointed a lot. Well, well, but also like that just doesn't seem like it's very connecting. 
Like, that just means you could go... And I think that's one of the things, like, that I would throw back in your face during our bad sexual experiences. I was like, you can just go have sex with anybody. Why don't you do that? It doesn't matter. Right? Like, we would be arguing, like, just go have sex with somebody else if you need but sex. It, but again, it but does. It, but you're like, you know, that's how it made me feel yeah, when you're I, like... I get We that. would argue, but then you're like, so, can we have, you know, can we do it? And I'm like, God, I hate you right now. And no, I don't want to have sex with you. But I, I knew I could get the connection there. And I thought you could too. I didn't understand that there's all these other factors that are required for you to find the connection. Right. So maybe that's part of the listener question is you both have to educate yourselves a little bit more than just what, you know, what you think you know. Because that was the case for us. We had to like, you didn't have to join a, you don't have to join a master's program, but you do have to (laughs) have to educate yourself a little bit more on you know sexual behavior yeah absolutely so so and then the fourth stage of the sex and intimacy cycle is orgasm and um you know i i i feel like i don't know that we need to talk a lot about that probably maybe that'll be a different day or maybe never Based on the face I'm getting from you, probably never. I think people know what an orgasm is. Well, I know is. they know what it is, but... Then why do you have to talk about it? Just that it's... Um, it, well, okay, fine. It's just part of the cycle. So, yeah. attraction, desire, arousal, orgasm, those are the the things that you're going for. And um, they're more work for, you know... Well, and they ar- the, but the arousal the piece I'm going to add too is that's where you have to have good communication skills because being able to say this is what I want and it's not the same thing every time for some people like some people like variety some people like don't like variety that much you know you have to have confidence and you have to have self esteem so then you can take those directions. From your partner. One of the things we found... Or to try, you know... Is it it works much better for you and I when, for the most part, you are the one taking charge. Because you know what you want, and you know that it's different one time from the next. And for the most part, it just goes better when you're the one guiding and directing. And because I know where we're going, I know that it's going to be awesome in the end. I don't have any kind of... I don't know, masculine need to be in charge or... I know if I overstep and I over try to exert what I want, I'm going to shut you down. Yeah, well, and I think so that's... I'm really careful not to do that. And it's based on history. I mean, it's based on conversations that we've had per our history where I felt like I was shut down and like you acted like I didn't know what I needed or wanted or if it was something different or variety You're like well it didn't ha- that wasn't how it was last time I'm like well it's different today you know or this time so I think that just helps make me feel more confident and be able to enjoy it because I know I'm not going to get backlash not not that you're you know I, that sounds very dominating but that the point of the relationship that we have now in a lot of ways is for that connection and you know that the, I have based on learning and experience that I have needs that are different than your sexual needs. And so you being respectful of my sexual needs makes it better for both of us. So it's better for you in the long run. We have different sexual needs. We also have different needs that we get out of sex. We get out of that physical intimacy piece. What I mean by that is you especially probably anyway because of the way you know you grew up and because you're a woman and you had you know alcoholism in your family growing up and so there were always kind of trust issues and then you trusted me implicitly when we first got together and I broke that trust so because of all the damage throughout your life that's been done to trust the thing that you can most benefit from getting out of a healthy, intimate relationship is trust. Okay? Okay. I, I, we understand now that you have to bring a certain amount of trust into the encounter 
But if you've got that level of trust going in, then you can get even more trust coming out. I mean, that's unquestionable in our experience. The thing I get out of it, that, that connection comes from your full kind of release and you're giving me that trust. Like, it's really important for me to feel trusted, especially after all we've been through. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by release? Like when, when you are... Let my guard down? Let your guard down. Okay, because you've mentioned release twice, and I want to make sure that our listeners are understanding that I'm not just like laying in bed like, take me, but like I'm letting no, my guard participating, down. But, but I'm participating, but the boundaries are gone. Yeah, I'm letting my guard down. I'm feeling relaxed and confident and comfortable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's what's... Okay, here's maybe an interesting kind of side tangent to that that will help our listeners understand. It's hard for you to get to that full release, full trust, full guard down here at our home, no matter how quiet we are with our family in the house. When on the very rare occasion where we go away and we're staying in a hotel room, for instance, and it's just the two of us, you don't give a shit if there are other people staying in the hotel because they're not related to you. And I'm not saying you start screaming. Go eat breakfast with them. I'm not saying you start screaming and you, again, swinging off. I'm not saying that. But your guard comes right down. If if it gets a little bit loud and somebody hears, you don't care. Because those aren't your people. Is that fair? Unless, like, our people was in the hotel room next to us. Yes. I'm saying if it's just you and I and we're off away somewhere. Yes. You can... And I've seen it and it's fascinating to me how much quicker you can... Relax and let your guard down when there aren't other people around that we know. Yeah. doesn't matter if Unless there are other people Unless I'm being around. forced, you know, like feeling forced or pressured, you know. Well, Like, like past experience. Well, like past, previous experiences of like, like for example, what we talked about with on Amber um, Hollingsworth, like Facebook or YouTube Live was like my 40th birthday. It was just totally expected that it was just going to be sex, 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 according to you. But never any engagement So leading up to that. So So, I would use the word coerced to talk about that. Yeah. There is a lot of coerced sex in marriage. Yeah, or expected. You know, so yes. So if if we're going into it with the same, you know, experience or... And things have been good. It's not like I can just turn off if you've been behaving badly according to my standards. Then I can't be like, oh, but we can still have great vacation sex or, you know. It still has to be... Mutual, and you still have to be attractive to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so th- this is like, you know, one little piece over here builds on this little piece over here, which builds on this little piece over here. And I think that's by design, frankly. I think that a fulfilling, intimate relationship is like the pinnacle of relationship stuff. And so the fact that it's hard to get to is by design, whether you, like me, uh, believe that that's divinely inspired or if you just think that that's how we have evolved through natural selection or whatever. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not here to question that piece of it, but I think because it's so difficult and it's one piece plays off another, um, it is the pinnacle of relationship success and it's really, really important. And obviously I wouldn't be spending all this time and money on a master's program if I didn't think it was really, really important. So let's talk about what this means when we talk about it building one building on another and talk about it from a practical sense. I can't be short with you. I can't have a temper. I can't be whiny or needy. I can't be negative. If I, as we've said, am always feeling attraction and desire, I need to keep that in the front of my mind. Now, that might sound awful to you. You might be thinking, oh, so you're going to think about sex more? And that's going to be helpful how? But here's what I mean. It has to be a filter that I run things through. If I'm attracted to you and I desire you, then the way I interact with you needs to run through that filter. I need to be good to you, is what I'm saying. I can't just fly off the handle and yell at you and then expect that to be easily repaired, because it won't be. That'll take a long time to repair. I can't, you know, it's one thing if I'm sick, right? But otherwise, I can't just be needy and be constantly begging you for support and then expect 
you'd have any kind of desire for me at all. I can't um, be, this is one you pointed out just recently. I've been under a lot of stress and I've been really negative. And you called me out and said, listen, all the negativity, that's not helping here. You didn't speak specifically to sex, but I ha- like I said, I have to run all these things through that filter now. And it's, it's helping me. And I said, you know what, you're right. I got life licked. What am I worried about? And I'm going to stop walking around being negative and complaining about things. And I've tried. And it's gotten, I think it's gotten better. But well, and it doesn't mean you can't do those things, but you can't constantly do those things and then, you know, be the person that's doing them and not recognizing you're doing them. Like, you know, there are times, like, like I called you out on the negativity and you're like, you're right. I didn't realize I'm being so negative. Right. And so for you to even recognize that you were and trying to change that, you know, like you apologize and you're respectful of my opinion about it. So you can't just dismiss your poor behavior. So, I mean, you can... I think as the other partner do some of those things, but you also have to recognize that you're doing them and that you're hurting the relationship and, and like not make amends, but talk to your partner about it. Say, I know that I've been really complaining a lot or I've been really bitchy a lot or I've been really negative a lot and I'm sorry about that and I'm going to work on it. And I mean, I think it's not that you can't ever do those things. Yeah. I mean, like I'm I'm not trying to mean like Matt has to be perfect all the time. Well, and I wouldn't want to be fake either. Right. But yeah, but there are times when I dip into all of those things, when I am negative or I have a temper or I'm short or I'm needy. Um, but I just have to process that this is playing into her attraction and desire. So how much like without being fake, you know, guys, my age, like my hair's falling out. Right. So the gut uh, reaction is, let's go check out some Rogaine. Let's see how that stuff works. Do I want to invest in that? And, you know, for my own sense of self, that might be something. But I certainly am not going to buy Rogaine for you. You don't give a fuck if all my hair falls out. (laughs) And I know that now. But listen, most 50-year-old dudes don't know that. Right? They... They think of attraction differently. Yeah, and maybe, you know, and I think there are some women that appearance means a lot. You know. Um, but honestly, I think they're just not as shallow, but go. That's a whole other topic. Yeah, so I wouldn't want to be fake, and it doesn't have to be all the time. But running my behavior through this filter seems to be really helpful. Um, now... I think the most important takeaway from this whole discussion, I think, is that my a big chunk of my self-esteem, which we all know is super important for recovery, comes from that release and that trust and that giving over of yourself that you're able to do now and that you enjoy doing and that you get a lot out of. Um, And... Your self-esteem is in that release and trust too. You, you get a lot out of that. With you know, when when we were apart, when you were uh, helping your mom earlier in the year, and you were gone, and then when you came back, you were still stressed from the trip, and I was giving you lots of room for re-entry, as we like to say, because re-entry has been bad for us on so many occasions. And we didn't make any attempt at physical intimacy for quite a while. You know, we had a big argument. And blow up and it didn't go well. And what we've learned is, and that's, you know, kind of what you were saying at the beginning of the episode. You get a lot out of that intimate connection too. You get self-esteem from it. You get trust. Um... And so it's not just about me. It's not just about fulfilling my needs because I'm the dude and I need it more than you do. It's much, much deeper than that. Well, like you said, there's like a hormonal release. So that plays a big component or big part in that too, right? Like that hormonal release that happens in the um, chemistry that happens in the brain. It's not just in you know, the private parts, but that I think, you know, makes people feel good. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, we both have to work on it and we both have to work on it with a mutual goal. 
And I think that's very hard. When you've been mistreated sexually, when you've had, as the listener question said, less than, oh no, I can't remember, less than satisfactory or less than ideal, less than healthy patterns. Um, The idea of working on it sounds terrible, but it's important. And it's important for both of you. And it's important for the overall relationship success. So, hey, nothing wrong with having a shared goal. That total release and trust is beneficial to both. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.